The following article from our Knowing and Doing Quarterly Journal is brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our prayer is that this talk will help to deepen your faith and draw you closer to God. The Credibility of the Christian Life in Contemporary Narcissistic Society, Part 2, by Dr. James M. Houston, Senior Fellow and Co-Founder of the C.S. Lewis Institute. As we continue the exploration of narcissism begun in Part 1, we need to first briefly note the roots of the current trends toward the exaggerated sense of autonomy that spawns narcissism. This is necessary because postmoderns are tempted to live in the solipsism of authenticity, which is one's own appraisal of what is real and true. This implies that I alone exist, and the outside world exists only in my consciousness. The ideas of four key thinkers contribute to contemporary thinking about human autonomy. Philosophical Theories of Selfhood When René Descartes, 1596-1650, to in the 17th century introduced the thesis, I think, therefore I am, he was making a radical shift to situate moral sources within ourselves. Instead of having an external referent, as does Plato, in the eternal ideas, and biblical faith in the Creator, Descartes now builds upon human intelligence to construct reality from within oneself as the thinker. But he goes further, for likewise, morality comes from within the self, controlled by reason, to be used instrumentally. For a good Stoic, the rewards of the good life are self-esteem, inner peace, self-control. For Descartes, it is the moral value of being, quote, a generous soul, end quote. This did not mean generosity in the sense of being open-handed to others, but more primitively, being self-identified as, quote, being honorable to oneself, end quote. Being reasonable, and being honorable went hand in hand. Such are the fruit of the, quote, thinking self, end quote. As Charles Taylor summed it up, quote, the Cartesian proof is no longer a search for an encounter with God within. It is no longer the way to an experience of everything in God. Rather, what I now meet is myself. I achieve a clarity and a fullness of self-presence that was lacking before. But, from what I find here, reason bids me infer to a cause, and transcendent guarantee, without which my now well-understood human powers couldn't be as they are. The road to deism is already open. End quote. By deism is meant a necessary postulate for a transcendent principle. But calling him or it God does not imply any personal relationship with God. In fact, it is the first step to atheism. That is why when religious or church people have no intimate personal relatedness to God, whether clergy or lay, 
the secular culture may easily force them to acknowledge that they should logically recognize themselves to be atheists. With John Locke, 1632-1704, knowledge is not genuine unless you develop it yourself. To reason, Locke adds the need of freedom to think detachedly, taking objectivity to unprecedented lengths. This includes self-detachment, to redefine ourselves introspectively as an intelligent self. This is reified, as in making relationships into things, Latin race meaning thing, to generate a rational idealism of self-responsibility, to shape the self as interpreting the cosmos into an I-it relationship. The Newtonian mechanistic universe is matched with an objectified, dehumanized self seen only from a third-person perspective. Yet, this was only unpackaged later, for socially, Locke was a pious, socially attractive, kindly individual who valued his friends. Locke exemplifies the fact that we may not be inwardly as we appear to be esteemed outwardly. David Hume, 1711-1776, became immersed in all the sweep of Enlightenment legacy. He no longer believes in God, with no need of metaphysical foundations, and with the loss of a providential world. As a neo-Lucretian, he can only make the best of it, in self-ingenuity, and with no fear of the gods anymore. He is another Robinson Crusoe, who has to manage alone on his desert island to make the utilitarian best of it all. Arbitrary things happen to us, so accept the best of it we can, living with a diminished sense of the self. All we find, argues Hume, is that we are just bundles of perceptions and associated thoughts. Quote, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other. I can never catch myself at any time without a perception, and can never observe anything but the perception. End quote. Again, he was esteemed as a beloved friend. Adam Smith, his literary executor, eulogized after his death that Hume was, quote, as near to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of human frailty will permit, end quote. Clerical friends as well as free thinkers agreed. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, was the most radical of all the philosophers considered so far. Unlike them, he was also the most difficult man to get on with, destroying many friendships. In contrast to Pascal, who looked into his inner self only to find original sin in all its darkness, Rousseau looks inward to hear the voice of nature, assuring him he is full of natural goodness. The fall is not what we have done in rebellion against God, but what we have done to ourselves. The original impulse of nature is good, not bad. Conscience, then, speaks to us in the language of nature. 
quote, When man is content to be himself, he is strong indeed. End quote. One is only weak when you rely upon others. Thus, Rousseau has the most modern voice of all these thinkers, teaching that self-love is best for society, that, like the hippies, the best people are those close to nature in rural life, and goodness springs from freedom, and the closer I am to myself, the closer I am to the divine. Rousseau is then the antithesis of Augustine. Both have a spacious inner life, the one to be integrated and filled with the companionship of God, the other to be self-explored for radical autonomy. Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804, was perhaps the greatest of all these philosophers. He is perturbed that morality was vanishing away, so the moral law is an external prerequisite to which one needs to conform. He attempts to argue that acting rationally must therefore be to act morally. This we can do by acting on principles, uniquely as human beings. Unlike Rousseau, Kant has a lively sense of the difference between good and evil, yet he assumes that to be rational is to be in quest of universal benevolence. This Kantian ideal of having faith in ourselves to become more civilized was idealized by Woodrow Wilson. His dream was to elect philosopher kings as the ambassadors to the League of Nations. Their mandate was to rule the civilized world in a culture of the elite. Instead, there has been the eruption of mass cultures, false ideologies, and now, in reaction, an intensification of individualism such as we have never witnessed before in the history of mankind. The Conflicts of the Modern Individualist Among the many conflicts of the modern world, we shall select three of particular relevance to narcissism today. 1. The Challenge of Autonomy Without tracing further the growth of ideas about human autonomy, we are all aware that our Western culture is now broadly founded upon individualism. Its secularism is now expressive of the fear of the other. Since Nietzsche, secularists have assumed that to admit of God is to forfeit freedom. Since Sartre, the further fear of the other is that other human being has also become my enemy. Since Sartre, the further fear of the other is that the other human being has also become my enemy. When otherness becomes pathological, then ethnic, sexual, economic, social, and handicap differences all become compounded to isolate oneself as living with a label of difference. Then all differences become divisions rather than sources of richer community and communion. The resultant contemporary Western self, states the British sociologist Anthony Giddens, quotes, is frail, brittle, fractured, and fragmented, end quote. He was not delving as deeply as we have traced, 
But when cities become more throughways than community meeting points, then difference intensifies the urban alienation. Number two, the challenge of the instrumental self. A second source of conflict lies in the Cartesian rationality of the self. Instrumentality reached its fulfillment in the Victorian bourgeois self, leading the Industrial Revolution. Religion became increasingly circumscribed, so that for the working class, the factory now took precedence over the church. Everything was now thought to be reducible to knowledge, to be understandable and fixed. The unknown lay in the external now, exploring the interior life in a unique way. Freud did this with his technique of psychoanalysis to free the ego from impulsive behavior thought to dwell in the mysterious unconscious. In the post-war disenchantment with psychoanalysis as a pseudoscience, a new theory was promoted to absorb the war capacity of mass production, the empty self, and the optional lifestyle. As Philip Cushman notes, quote, the lifestyle solution is advertising's cure for the empty self, end quote. It became a salesman's strategy. Such depletion of the self as we have seen has intensified our narcissistic culture in many ways, but its breakdown became expressive of the therapeutic ethos. As Philip Reef observed, a fundamental change of focus had occurred when, quote, a sense of well-being has become an end, rather than a byproduct of striving after some superior communal end, to create an intensely private sense of well-being, end quote. This has significantly promoted the narcissism we now explore in the ingestion of self-psychology. The 60s adage that you are what you eat is truer than we may be aware. The bewilderment is that some therapists will tell you about 460 different menus being offered. Number three, the challenge of dementia. From a very different angle, the challenge of aging and the rapidly increasing incidence of brain diseases such as dementia and Alzheimer's threaten a quarter or even a third of the older generation with the loss of memory. Our society has become so intensely professionalized that the threat of losing our minds is as terrifying as leprosy was in the past to a tribal or strongly communal way of life. To be cast out as unclean was worse than the disease itself. Now, dementia is being recognized as the alienation of mind. It is indisputable that some loss of personal identity is inevitable, but are there more enduring traits still not lost? If so, then the philosophical theories discussed earlier about definitions of the self come under scrutiny with new urgency. For if one accepts the Cartesian Lockean meaning of the self, then the victim of dementia is left stranded in an inert condition, and the whole health care of such patients lacks any motive to face the challenge of such debilitating illness. Awareness of one's identity may vanish with the disease, but others can still step forward to be the memory for one so afflicted, who still remains a self. 
Indeed, their loving care can enhance their own sense of self to continue to share with the other, crippled by the disease. As Paul Ricker points out, there are two sources of identity, Edom, or sameness, and Ipse, or selfhood. The former asks the question, what am I? While the latter asks, who am I? The philosophers we previously discussed dwelt only on the first issue of what is common to all humans, but they lost sight of selfhood as a unique person. The dementia patient may lose idem, but not ipse, whereas the healthy person has no separation between them. Both sameness and oneness or uniqueness are integrated to varying degrees as expressive of one's identity. But the day is not far away when, for pragmatic reasons, such as health costs, the temptation may become irresistible to advocate euthanasia for dementia patients, if only idem, and not also ipse, is recognized. A Christian Conclusion We are being challenged, then, by profound issues. Narcissism is globally reflective of deep-rooted fallacies about the human identity. Since it is expressive of original sin, it seems too inherent to expect a resolution. So some humanists now advocate that we view human identity and psychotherapy as moral discourse, seeking the historical perspective of a hermeneutical alternative. By this, they mean that we should trace historically throughout our global cultures the diversified sources of the self in a kaleidoscope of identities. Liberal Jews now may advocate this since the impasse of an Israeli identity reflects a babble of voices as to who is a contemporary Jew, traditional or westernized. Indeed, many of the world's conflicts today are over issues of identity, Jew and Arab, Taliban and Afghan, terrorist and Western, even liberal and evangelical. In all cases, sameness and oneness are not in balance. At a terrible cost, secularism has taken human identity out of God's hands as our creator in the attempt, freely or rebelliously, to create our own human understanding of ourselves. The divine affirmation of the human as made in the image of God is a far more exalted view of being human than we can ever conceive otherwise. Even Christians, when they accept a professional identity as to how they live and relate, make a terrible betrayal of what it is to be in Christ. Only there is there the harmony and symmetry of being both like Christ and yet truly oneself. This reflects on the mystery of the Trinity, that in God there is both oneness and yet difference. The Father is not to be confused with the other two persons, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Truly, the self is other. As John Zasulas has explored so profoundly, otherness should be constitutive of the human being. In being, in having freedom, as well as in immortality. As members of Christ's body, the Church, we have a new creation by baptism. 
Jesus has told us, If the Son shall make you free, you are free indeed. John 8, verse 36. Likewise, in Christ we have the assurance of the resurrection. Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 19. So, for the church fathers, quote, God as the other par excellence is the object of endless desire, a desire that knows no satiety, but at the same time, the ultimate destination of desire is rest. End quote. For the desire is mutual. God's desire for us to be with Him, John 17, 24, as well as our desire to be with Him in eternal communion. Thank you for listening. The C.S. Lewis Institute endeavors to develop disciples who will articulate, defend, and live their faith in Christ in personal and public life. This takes the form of discipleship programs, area-wide conferences and seminars, pastor fellowships, and resources in print and on the web. For more information about the C.S. Lewis Institute, or to support this ministry, please visit our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org.